Okay, if you were with me last fall, it seems like a long time ago, but we started studying the, the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ. How many know what the Bible teaches about Jesus is a bit different from what the world would suggest about him? Very different. And we're kind of really digging in the Bible to see what it has to say about him. But in the life and teachings of Jesus, you remember, we talked about, uh, we did an overview of his life. We kind of did a timeline from his birth all the way through his resurrection. We looked at the Gospels. We talked about a harmony of the four Gospels and how they fit together. And the big part of what we taught last fall about Jesus was the what? Such a great job. We only did ten weeks of the parables of Jesus. I'm glad all four of you remembered. But this spring, actually this kind of portion of winter and spring, we're going to endeavor to, I'm calling it the greatest story ever told, but it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And if you want to see Jesus at his best, I think those three chapters probably summarize the teachings of Christ better than any other portion of Scripture. It was the first, um, the first sermon that Jesus had, if I can say that, in the Gospel of Matthew. Why don't you turn to Matthew's Gospel, and uh, let's kind of begin there. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what's traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. You know why it's called the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, I preached it on the side of a mountain. So there was probably uh, some level spot where he was preaching. Luke's, Luke, in Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Likely there's at the same place. You can see kind of a condensed version of this Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Luke. But in Matthew's Gospel, let me know, G, uh, Matthew chapter 5, when, when Jesus began this teaching, is not the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I know that went right over your head. There was, a, there was a big word we talked about last time, and it began with C. Seven letters long. Before you read any verse of the Bible, what are you looking for? Thank you, sweetie. We're looking for the context, which means, why did you say that? See, every speech you ever hear, every pronouncement that's ever given has a certain context to it. There's something going on in the world around us. There's something going on in the minds of the individuals. It was given very early in Jesus' life. It was really given before the 12 disciples had really become prominent in his life and ministry. Uh, it was given before the Pharisees wanted to kill him. It was when Jesus was just beginning to rise in prominence. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew has a bit of background about his early life. It's the prophecies of Christ. We see the angels announcing the birth of Jesus in Charlie Brown's Christmas. We see in particular John the Baptist in his teach. Charlie Brown's not in the Bible. You do know that, don't you? All right. you and we also see John the Baptist's teaching. Okay, we see Jesus being baptized in water. Jesus submitted to water baptism to fulfill all righteousness. The Spirit of God comes down and it rests on Jesus Christ. And after that, Jesus starts preaching. And what do you think the first verse of his preaching was? Can anybody find it? It's in chapter 4. It's after verse 16 and it's before verse 18. What's verse 17? What's it say? What's the big R word? Yeah, so what Jesus is basically saying is, hey guys, you're going the wrong direction. Now, they had had the law of Moses probably, what would it be now, probably 1,000, 1,100 years. So the Old Testament teaching through Moses, the prophets had been around hundreds and hundreds of years. There were several religious groups that kind of held the teachings of the Bible together. They were called scribes and Pharisees. They were the Essenes. They were the Sadducees. Different groups all somehow holding it together, but most of the people had missed the true meaning of it. Most of it had allowed their religion to be dumbed down into external observances, and it had lost the heart and the soul. It had lost the sense of awareness of the need from God. It had become politicized. 
uh, Israel that in, in that particular period of time where Jesus was born, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, they were kind of a just a little, uh, you know, out in the boonies from the Roman Empire. The Romans were the boss. They were controlling everything. There was a, a puppet king. His name was Herod. He was in cahoots with the Roman Caesars and the governors and all that worked together. And here you got this move of God starting. And John the Baptist had begun baptizing people. And he said the R word, too, which was for turn from the way you're living. So Jesus throws that out there, repent, then he calls a few disciples, and then he starts this Sermon on the Mountain. Now, what I'm going to be looking at as we go through, I'm going to use the Spirit-Filled Life Bible, which, by the way, if you're looking for a good study Bible, that's what I recommend. It's the New King James Version, but it's probably the best study Bible from a full gospel, charismatic, Pentecostal perspective. It's got great study notes. It gives you great introductory material. And uh, I'm going to be kind of going by the headings that he, he looks at here. And it looks like it's about probably 18 or 20 or so uh, of what's going to be in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you just kind of looked at, you know, go through it quickly with me, we'll see something called the Beatitudes. Next week we'll talk about believers are salt and light. Uh, about Christ fulfilling the Old Testament law. And then Jesus will say some startling things where he raises the standard of the law. And he said murder is not just the act of murder. It's, an, it's, it's the feelings of murder in your heart. Anyone ever had that feeling? Adultery is not just the act. It's the feeling in your heart. I won't ask if you've had that one. But murder, adultery, marriage, sacred and binding, a scripture that even much of the professing church has forgotten today, very relevant for the issue of same-sex marriage today. Um, see, I'm a believer that the Bible is absolute truth. I teach and believe that the Bible does not just contain the Word of God. It's not just good stories, but it is God's Word, A to Z, from Genesis to Revelation. We will one day stand and give an account based on the judgment and the standards of God's Word. Um, Jesus, he talks about oaths. He talks about going the second mile. And here's one you're really going to like. What in the world when he means that he talk about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies? I'd like to take some scissors and cut that one out, but it's right in the middle of it. He talks about doing good to please God, the model prayer, the Lord's prayer. I think that'll be most powerful. Fasting. He talks about money, laying up treasure in heaven. He talks about what comes in our eye, what we let through our eye gate. The lamp is uh, the lamp of the body. He makes a statement saying you can't serve God in riches. He talks about worry. The great scripture we quote all the time about Matthew six thirty three: Seek ye first the and his, and I'll take care of you. That's basically what he says. He talks about judging, and we'll see what that means. Because there's a lot of people that criticize Christianity, and when you try to say something is wrong, they will immediately say to you, yeah, don't judge me. Doesn't the Bible say don't judge? Well, we're going to see what that means because it doesn't mean what they're suggesting. That same Bible also says that we are to judge righteous judgment. So the Bible is not forbidding you making a, a biblical assessment of behavior. It's talking about a condescending attitude. It's talking about something that, that kind of like ignores your own life and condemns and, and, and judges another person. We'll get into that in more depth. Uh, he's talking about pray, in prayer the necessity for persistence. He's talking about the narrow way to heaven. Jesus will make a statement that is politically incorrect. Jesus will say the path to destruction is wide and lots of folks are on it. The path to life is narrow and few find it. Uh, Jesus said, gave us an indicator about how to judge the true and the false. He said, by their fruits. And then there's pretty amazing scripture when there's people who were prophesying, casting out demons. But Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. We're going to explore that too. And then, of course, it's that great passage about building your life on the rock. 
So all these are kind of snippets of teaching. I have found myself in my reading over the last few years, rather than reading longer books, I want to get it in like a page or I want to get it in a paragraph because there's so much to know out there. And, and this Sermon on the Mount is just like that. Jesus will give you three or four, maybe five or six verses that grab you and then he'll move on to another subject. But this probably more than any other passage in Scripture encompasses what's called the ethics of the kingdom of God. It shows us how righteous people are to live and it's a call to live at a higher level. So let's look tonight at something called the Beatitudes. Robert Schuller, if you ever remember him days ago, he called it the Be Happy Attitudes. Because the word beatitude simply means it is the way to be happy. You will find in about ten verses that says, Blessed is the man, and how many know man is generic? It's not a sexist statement. It's Blessed is the person who, and then it's a fill in the blank. So what Jesus is saying, this is the way to find true happiness. Now, people are searching for happiness all over the planet. They're searching for lots of different ways. Tonight, there are people that will hopefully they'll find happiness and they'll find somebody selling drugs and they'll get high and they hope that will make them happy. The problem is it makes them happy for a little while. They come down the next morning. They forget where they park their car. They're afraid they may be pregnant. Uh, they have to start. They lose their job. They're having to steal from their mother because they have to fo- keep their drug habit going. It's like the world offers, offers uh, fake substitutes for happiness. See, but Jesus said there is a way to find true happiness, and it's a way in find your happiness in context of Christ the King. We're going to see what it means. Let's, uh, let's kind of walk through this a couple of verses at a time. But I want you to think of the word happiness and, and the way to find happiness. Matthew chapter 5, let's begin at verse 1. Seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth. And he taught them. Now, let's first kind of get the picture here. A Jewish rabbi, rabbi it means a what? It's a teacher. Jesus was a teacher, and kind of the model was the teacher would begin to teach, and his disciples would gather around him. The world, word disciple was a learner. So all rabbis then had disciples. It was not just the Christians that had disciples, but it was people that were learning from or being trained. It's like uh, we use the word mentoring today. What a mentor does basically says, follow me and watch me do it, and then I'm going to let you do it, and I'm going to critique you, and then I'm gonna, you're going to do it, and, 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 and I'm going to be doing something else. It's a process of teaching a person to do anything from laying bricks to washing dishes to preaching in a pulpit. But that's what Jesus was doing, was not just communicating information, but he was making lives. But Jesus' invitation to discipleship did not extend to the vast multitudes of people. He selected 12 people that not only he would teach, but he would give his life to. They would share life with him, and he would ultimately connect them with the destiny of the world. So he's preaching here. More than likely, the disciples are not the smaller group, but they are the larger group of people that he's talking about. Not quite sure where this mountain is. It's somewhere in Galilee. You remember, Galilee is like Miller County and, and Bowie County. It's a, it's a large area. Um, these blesses now, now, now you remember the verse that we use as the context for, for the uh, Sermon on the Mount it was the word repentance so I want to suggest in your mind what Jesus is saying is this these blessings are the promises of the kingdom for people who live a repentant life in other words the blessing comes when you turn from the way you used to live when you let go of the old priorities and begin to embrace my priorities that I'm introducing to your life. And this is how this is how people in right relationship with God should conduct their life. And this is a big thing because, listen, everybody wants to go to heaven. 
you know, you've heard the saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. Well, listen, even the most ardent agnostic, the person who doesn't believe, the antagonistic person, they've got a little thought in the back of their mind. Come on. But the problem is, is people kind of want to make it up as they go. We want to make our own ru the rules of religion. That's, that's popular in America today. It's kind of like uh, uh, going through Subway for a sandwich. You say you get to pick out your bread, and, and you get to pick out your meat, and you get to pick out what vegetables or no vegetables, and you get to pick out your cheese, and then you get to pick out if you want it toasted or not, and, and you get to pick out one of ten sauces to put on it, and what kind of sprinkles do you... You can say I go to Subway a lot. What kind of sprinkles you get on your bread? People take that consumer mentality and they say, I'm going to de define my religion that way. I'm going to decide if and when I go to church and what I do, and, and I'm going to decide what portions of the Bible I want to obey. But now I love the Lord, and I, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is not talking about a religion that we make up. Jesus is basically saying, this is the way of the kingdom. You need to turn and you need to conform to my ways. And guess what he said? He said, if you do that, you're going to be happy. You'll find true happiness in life if you will conform your life to me. I talk to people not too frequently, but way often than, more than I want to, and they say, I'm just not happy being married. I'm not happy, and I prayed about it, and I think the Lord wants me to be happy. Now, that's true. I think the Lord wants me to be happy. Which, by the way, on marriage, now the Dublos are doing the marriage seminar. Why don't you stand up? They're doing the marriage seminar. It's called Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. I mean, they're going to be kind of the moderator in it, but it's a week from Friday. Friday and Saturday, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, Valentine's weekend. And I really, listen, it's the best marriage material I've ever heard in my life, bar none. And I'm not just selling stuff here. It is tremendous. And I hope that you'll sign up, get your spouse signed up. be a great gift to bring your family to a little higher level there. But anyway, we kind of are on this pursuit of happiness. But guess what? Jesus is right there in the middle of it. He quotes from Genesis, and he talks about divorce, and he clarifies it in the minds of the people. Um, let's see. Now, we're going to look at some terms here. You're going to see some terms, poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. Now, mind you, Jesus didn't speak in a vacuum. He spoke to Pharisees. He spoke to people who define religion outwardly by what they did. But Jesus, as he begins this great sermon, talks about issues of the heart. And what you're going to see tonight is most of what we're going to look at in these attitudes of happiness have nothing to do with outside rules of religion. But there's something about the transformation, transforming power of Christ and what God can do inside our lives. And it's inside is that place of happiness. Let's, let's begin in verse 3, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. This word happy, when he says, blessed are thee, which Jesus is saying, happy is the person, or, or you're fortunate. And what it's not talking about, it's not talking about material things. It's finding happiness in context with your relationship with God. Remember the scripture I read in, the, read in the offering tonight where it was talking about being content with food and clothing? Well, how can you be content with food and clothing unless you find some source of joy outside of the stuff? Are you with me? Stuff is not sinful. It's not bad. God tells us we can enjoy it. But you can be happy irrespective of how much you have if your relationship with God is where it needs to be. Let's look at these, and we'll kind of go through these briefly. Blessed are the poor in spirit... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does poor in spirit mean? First of all, as you're thinking, does it mean poor, that I don't have much money? No. Now, in Luke, when he records it, he says, blessed are the poor. 
Now, Luke could have had a different intent in writing, but Matthew didn't say that. So there's not some inherent uh, worth in poverty. I can guarantee in Haiti, most folks down there are not happy right now. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? And why would that be the first thing Jesus says when he's going to tell you how to be happy? This grand teaching that will cover everything from, you know, marriage to money and everything in between. Why would the first thing he choose have to be something called poor in spirit? What do you think it means? Okay, letting us know we can't depend on ourselves. All right, anybody else? Humble. All right, that's a great word. Anybody else? Needy. Needy of what? Oh, how about that? And that something is not just stuff, or it's not just accomplishments, it's not just achievements, it's not just acquisition of anything from degrees to cars, but it's relationship with God. So poor in spirit is kind of the opposite of prideful. It, it's trying to paint a picture here. Poor in spirit is one who consciously depends on God and not themselves. Now think about that. Consciously depending on God for everything and not themselves. It is having no ability in themselves even to please God, but you need Him. It's like being, it's like being keenly aware of your spiritual need. I was uh, talking to Pastor Travis today, and he was telling me about a friend he was witnessing to, to, and he said, listen, this guy knows his Bible. He is smart, he is educated, he has money, and he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He is the opposite of being poor in spirit. See, you can be the wealthiest person in the world and be poor in spirit. Because, because poor in spirit does not, it doesn't deal with what you have. It deals with your recognition that I am a man in need of God. See, when we start the Lord's Prayer, think about this. Here's how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First, the very first words of the Lord's Prayer. God, you're exalted. You're God, and I'm a man. And you are holy, which means I'm to conform my life around you. So this whole sense is, and it doesn't mean that you, well, I'm just nobody and I don't have anything. Listen, you could have double PhDs in astrophysics or something and still be humble in spirit, broken in spirit, poor in spirit, because one of the greatest gifts God can give you is a recognition of your need for Him. And that's what's missing in most of America today. It is totally missing in our government. There is no sense of need for anything. We just print more money, tax more money, borrow more money. We can solve our own problems rather than a recognition of humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, we need you. And it's interesting that that's the first thing the Lord says is towards the path towards true happiness is recognizing your need for him, poor in spirit. Look at the second thing that he says. Blessed are those who mourn. That. Well, first of all, before, the, before I say bless the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven last fall. But let me just say, the kingdom of heaven is mentioned twice. I think here first and drop, drop down about four or five verses. But the kingdom of heaven is bigger than the church. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of God. And how many know ultimately everything, ultimately everything is under the rule of God, though right now there's some disobedience and rebellion against it? So you and I find our identity in, 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 in relation to Christ the King and we're his servants. Blessed are those, verse 4, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now tell me two things people mourn over in the Bible. Hang on. Uh, death, loss, uh, sadness, and what else? Sin. Say it again. Sin. They mourn over sin in the Bible. Now we don't mourn over sin much in, as Americans, do we? No, we don't. Not even in the church. Certainly not in the world because the world doesn't even know such a thing as sin exists. 
But in the church, we recognize it. And sin, sin breaks the heart of God. And it was sin that drove Christ to the cross. See, and this morning, it's a little difference on the people that you read about what this text means. Certainly, God is the comforter. But the mourner, again, is the one who recognizes his need for help. Come on, if you lose someone, if you lose your husband, you recognize that, listen, how am I going to make it? I need God. And really, the whole message of life in the Bible is, I need God. So this morning, certainly God suggests that he will comfort those who are mourning, whether they're mourning for their loss, but certainly if they're mourning for the sinful condition of the nation and their own life. Now, verse 5 is kind of repetitive of verse 3. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? In your inheritance? What does the word meek mean? Hmm? Yeah, gentle, a submissive attitude. Humble. What does that mean? <laughs> you have a brilliant man back there. Humble means meek and meek means humble. It's very abstract, isn't it? You just don't know when you've got... That's one of those words that... Well, how do you know if you're humble or not? And how do you know if you meet a humble person? Is a humble person just kind of... Well, no, I can't do anything, and this you just not me. That's not that could be pride. Humble. It's an awkward word. Do you know Moses was described in the Bible? Moses was in Numbers twelve three. It said Moses was very meek, above all men which are upon the face of the earth. A modern translation said Moses was very humble. He was the least proud person on the earth. Now, what is pride all about? Pride is all about me. That's right. Humility is all about God. And I'm going to suggest to you that every one of us is on a journey towards, towards recognizing our need for dependence on God. And why do I say that? One, because you're on a journey towards death. Now, who likes to think about it? Death is something that happens to everybody but you. Other people die. You go to their funeral, but you don't. Well, guess what? God is trying to scream at us and say, we need him. See, remember this word, poor in spirit? It's humble. It's meek. It's a, it's a sense of awareness. It's not weakness. When you think about Moses, and he was the meekest man on the earth, listen, Moses was one guy that came down the mountain, and a million-plus people were worshiping a golden calf, and he took that calf, he put it in the water, set it on fire, and he made them drink it. I mean, those people were going crazy, and he'd just kind of like slap them in the face. And he would just say, stop it. I mean, Moses was like, you know, he was what you would think was a powerhouse. But the Bible says he was the meekest man on the earth. Why? Because he depended on God more than anybody else. See, remember, Scripture says that in Christ we live and move and have our being. That he is our all in all. What does that mean? I'm simply recognizing that everything I am, everything I can do, and everything I will be is because of him. See, therefore, I don't take credit for it and I don't have to get glory for it because it's Christ in me. Paul, the great apostle, what's become a defining scripture, a portion of my life, 2 Corinthians 1, along about verse 5 and 6, Paul said, it was so bad I thought I was going to die. But then he said, this happened so I wouldn't depend on myself, but on God who raises the dead. See, so God is trying to move us from independence to dependence. And the process God uses to bring that about is something that's called brokenness, where literally God is like breaking our will, that he is causing us to become humble. What does the Bible say? If you humble yourself, what will God do? He'll exalt you. But if you exalt yourself, what will God do? 
He'll humble you. So this is the whole way that Jesus says, this is the, pay, the place to find true happiness. And you say, well, I look at people in the world and they appear happy. Look at John Edwards. He's really in the news now, isn't he? The affair that he had that he lied about and the baby and all that stuff. He was going to be president and now they're writing books about him and all that kind of stuff. You'd have looked at this guy and you'd have said, golly, here's a lawyer, makes $100 million and surely he's happy. And you look at his life and it's just kind of unraveling before his eyes. Jesus, you know, when we look at some of the craziest people as role models to think we'll be happy. I mean... I mean, think about it. Some of the movie stars. Why would anybody want to emulate Madonna? Not really. To, to find happiness. It's like we're looking for people to define for us where Jesus said this is the pathway. Um, let's keep reading. Look in verse, uh, verse. Now, how about this phrase, inherit the earth? That's pretty cool. What does that mean? I don't know either, but it sounds pretty good. But, you know, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth one day. Which means, you know, I'm, listen, I'm all for taking care of our planet, but one day this planet's going to be gone. You know, and I believe part of the extreme environmental movement are worshiping the earth. They're worshiping the creation more than the creator. Hence, they would say abortion is an acceptable practice because we want to keep the population down because they're, they're messing up the planet. They're messing up the pristine, whether it's the Arctic refuge uh, we don't want to have DDT because it's supposedly, and it's been debunked now, but we don't want to have DB, DDT even though it would kill the mosquitoes that cause malaria in Africa and all those people would live. We don't want it to get in the environment. Are you listening to me? And I'm not saying we should not care about our environment. We should care about our environment. But some people go to the extreme of they worship the environment. And I'm telling you, the Bible says that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But somewhere in this process, we're going to inherit this. So I don't know if we live in heaven where there's a mansion and we come down here to the, you know, to go duck hunting or turkey hunting. I don't know how that's going to work out. But, 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 but the meek will inherit something that's pretty grand called the earth. Now think about this. This is the way to happiness. Poor in spirit, mourning probably over the condition of mankind and the condition of your own life. And now meekness or humility. And that's totally opposite from anything you hear anywhere connected with anything you study in America. But Jesus said, this is the path to true happiness, recognizing that I'm God and you're not. And your place in life is found following after me. And if you live by my commandments, I'll take good care of you. See? Or would you rather live the kind of life where you're always looking over your shoulder about who's coming to get you, trying to remember what lie you just told so you, you, know, you could tell the next lie to get out of it and wondering who's chasing your wife because you're chasing somebody else's wife. Come on. You know, making sure there's a designated driver so you don't run over somebody because you've already lost your license. See, there's a different way to find happiness. Verse 6, blessed are those, now the fourth thing, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they're going to be what? Now, what does that mean, to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, this is very kind of abstract. This is hard for me to get a hold of. How do you? Now, I can, I can, when I'm thirsty... On a hot summer day, or when I've skipped a meal or two, or I'm hungry, my stomach's growling, I know what that is. But how do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Anybody got a grip on that? It's painting a picture of longing after God. Now think about this. It's a picture of longing after God. Um, the meaning is to seek something with all your heart and desire it above all else. See, your greatest desire 
is towards this. Uh, they, uh, one translation says those who burn as they wait for God's will to be done. See, what is, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment in all the Bible? What did Jesus say? Mark twelve twenty nine. Greatest commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. Now, that doesn't mean you go to church 24-7, but it means you're a Christian 24-7. You're someone who's in relationship with God. See, many times people hear something like this and they think, well, there's just this long list of rules I've got to obey. Listen, there's not a long list of rules you have to obey. It is about, Christianity is about a pursuit of Christ. And when you love Him as you hunger and thirst, see, that's, that's where the Bible says you're going to find true happiness. So the Bible says you're not going to find true happiness if you live a compartmentalized life and you have a God box of 30 minutes or an hour on Sunday and then you put the God box back on the shelf and then you live your life. The Bible says that's going to be vanity, that you will live your whole life. That's what Ecclesiastes Solomon did in Ecclesiastes. He tried to find happiness in pleasure, in possessions, in accomplishments, all these things. And when it was all over, he said it's vanity, it's empty, and it's meaningless. Because the place to happiness is found in relationship with God. So here he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is people who are, uh, they want more than anything else to do God's will. And they want to seek with all their heart to desire God's will. Can I tell you, I'm not there. How about you? Do you know how to get there? I'm not 100% sure either. But I do know that if I keep endeavoring to turn towards him, James says, draw near to God, and what will God do? Yeah, so you can't dumb this thing down to a formula. But I'll tell you something that I've been practicing in my life lately. It's a very simple thing. You may want to do it. I'm looking at my life as like a sailboat, a little sail dinghy. And I get up, and I literally do this in the morning. I put my hands up and say, God, I'm putting my sail up today. That's my job. Now, I want you to supply the wind, the current, the momentum. And, Jesus, I want to invite you to be in the rudder and to steer the ship. And that's just a picture of kind of how I'm positioning myself. Poor in spirit, I need you. Humble, I depend on you. And my job is just to put up the sail, which means I want to set my life in your hands and you provide whatever momentum you want to, whatever opportunities, wherever direction you want me to go, and you steer, you steer this ship. But there's something here. This is the path to happiness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A couple more here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain what? Now, this is a pretty easy one. What is merciful? What does that mean? What's it kind of connected to? Yeah. Compassion, forgiveness, giving people not what they deserve, justice, but in most cases, forgiveness and another chance. Remember what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive me for my sins. Come on. As I forgive other people. See, which says, if I forgive you, God will give forgive me, which is mercy. Give me not what I deserve, but giving me kindness. But if I don't forgive, what's the Bible say? God won't forgive you either. So this is kind of the picture here. Blessed are the merciful, for you will receive mercy. See, now listen, a merciful person, you have to couple mercy and truth. A merciful person is not someone who says, well, it's okay, you can just do anything you want to, honey. It's okay, it's okay if, 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 if you two girls want to get married, that's okay. I just want you to be happy. I don't want to rock the boat. You know, it's, it, it's okay. It's okay if you have a boyfriend on the side. That's okay. It's okay if you look at a little pornography. I understand. You've been married a long time. All oh, that's just okay. No, it's not okay. See, truth and mercy. Okay is that I don't care what you've done, I will still love you. I will forgive you. 
See, remember Peter comes up to Jesus and said, how many times have I got to forgive the, the bum? You know, seven times and he thought he was doing a great thing. And Jesus said, oh, no, seven times 70. See, so you, it's a Mary of, of mercy and truth. But blessed are the merciful. What did Jesus say on the cross as he was being crucified? Yeah, what did Stephen say as he was being stoned? Yeah, okay, I want everybody to do something here. I want you to put your hands up in there. I say I got a couple yawners out here. Just do like that. I guess it's a little warm in here. All right, I got. I need about five more minutes here, and we're gonna we'll wrap it up tonight. I'm glad you listen. I'd rather you take a nap in church than take a nap at home any day. I'm I'm just I'm just I'm just glad you're here. Look at verse eight. Blessed are the, for they shall. Now most people just want to go to heaven. Most people are because that's all about me. Seeing God is about my relationship with Him. Now, this is one of the biggest ones in this, in this whole passage. The pure in heart. Heart refers to your innermost being. That's the real you. That's where your motives are. That's where your devotion is. This is talking about a mind that's concerned solely to please God. Your only, exist, your only interest in life is serving God. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean you can't duck hunt or turkey hunt, I hope. I, I think that is okay with that. But, 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 but God occupies my life. Remember the psalm, Psalm 24, 3 and 4? Who may climb or ascend to the hill of the Lord? You know, who will stand in his holy place, but he who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. So listen, this is the process of sanctification where God cleans me up. Because all of us have issues. And typically what happens in a Christian's life, the first thing God does is he gets rid of the outside issues that other people see. But then the rest of your life, he works on the inside issues. And it's amazing how you can think or I can think I'm such a great saint and a flashlight turns on and there's this big ugly spot. Come on. And then you realize that it's not right. But this is worse sometimes. It's that habit you have that plagues you and you just can't seem to get rid of. Come on. And the devil says you're not even worthy to be called a Christian. But the Bible says we're to approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Because our high priest has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And it's this journey towards God to try to come to a place where we have clean hands and a pure heart. And the Bible says the reward of that person is they will see God. It is a picture of his presence. It is not a promise to with your eyes to see some manifestation of God on this earth. But it is a picture of his presence and drawing near to him. It is the great ambition of life. You know Paul, the great apostle who had gone to heaven. Literally, in a vision, an out-of-body experience. The first thing he said, I long to know him. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. But the first thing Paul said, I want to know him. So the greatest ambition in your life and my life is not just to do religious things, but it's to know God. Let me wrap up. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. What do you think a peacemaker is? Yeah, someone who, who helps friends get along. Someone who turns people that are at war with each other and the enemies that helps them reconcile and get back together. And Jesus uh, affirmed peacemakers uh, as a person who's going to be called the Son of God. Literally, God is going to call them His children. Now, look at verse 10, 11, and 12. This is uh, 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 not my favorite verse here. But Jesus said, Blessed or happy or favored is the person who's persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, what's up with that? What's their reward? 
Now think about it. Here's the second time in these few passages we've seen the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom of heaven means the rule of God. It's the sphere under which God is ruling, and we respond to that willingly. But Jesus said, you're blessed when you're persecuted. Now, this, this mentions suffering, um, uh, and it's because you do what God requires. Now, this is a big thing. See, we live in an era in America where we are now, there's a price to pay to be a Christian. Not so much here in the Bible Belt where we live. But in much of America today, listen, if you work for a Fortune 500 company and you don't go through sensitivity training, you could lose your job. What does that mean, preacher? That means the gay marriage agenda, come on, the homosexual agenda is just right there and everybody is on the same playing field. Why do they hate Sarah Palin so much? And I'm not, this is not a political statement, but why do they hate this spunky woman who is a governor of one of the largest states in America? Come on, why, why do we hate her? She walked on the stage with a, with a Down syndrome baby that should have been aborted. If there's anyone that the feminist should have embraced as someone who is doing it all, you know, a mom and a person of power, it should have been her. But they hate her. Why do they hate her? Because she believes in Jesus, righteousness, she stands for the Bible, and she has a little baby that should have been aborted under the standards of the world, and they're loving it. Remember when she was on stage and the kids lift their finger and they do the little baby? Yeah, uh, uh, not a classic. Why the world hates us? Jesus said, "You're blessed when they persecute you." Now I guarantee you, she said one of the reasons she quit as governor is because the, the state was going to have to pay all her legal expenses. Now don't get too cynical here about the money she's making from books. Sure she is, but she was being sued by everybody under the sun. Come on. See, and, and, and again, I'm not suggesting you vote for her, or she run or anything. I'm just saying she's a picture of somebody that has been in the target of the rifle for a long time after she got out of the spotlight. It can happen to you. You make a stand for life. I mean, it happens all over America. Why is there such a huge debate in America right now over a Super Bowl ad, over, over arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks in college football history, and for 30 seconds, you're, you're going to spend $2.5 million, your government, on the census trying to get people to sign up for one Super Bowl ad. But why is there such hatred? And, and, and why are they telling CBS to take it off the air? Or they're saying the way to get even is we want to put a homosexual dating ad on. That's true. Is this about getting even? There's just something about you will be persecuted for righteousness if you're a Christian. If you stand for God. But Jesus said you're going to be happy. He didn't say it's going to feel good. And he didn't say there wouldn't be a cost to it. But he said, in your relationship with God, both now and that which is coming, you're going to find a great happiness and a great sense of peace and a great fulfill, a sense of fulfillment. Now, here's another one here. When they persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, which means they say bad things about you that aren't true. They say wicked lies about you because you are my followers. And Jesus said, you're blessed. Now, who wants to have bad things said about him? Nobody. But I want to love God more than I want to fear the attack of man. See, because happiness in the Bible is not just about the perfect house and the perfect marriage and the perfect car and the perfect job and the perfect retirement. Come on. None of those things are bad. It's not a good or bad. It's like there's something more important. And the more important thing is birthed in relationship with God. The first thing he said... Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
those that are aware of their need for him. And he goes right down the line, the things that God values. Okay, without looking at our notes, let's try to conclude this way. What are the things, the qualities of life, the choices, the aspirations that God said will make us blessed, which means happy and fulfilled and favored? Poor in spirit. Mourn. And we're mourning over what? Sin or loss. Clearly, both of those in the Bible are, 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 are evidences. What's the third? What's another one? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is our passion for relationship with God, not just for religious things. What's another one? Persecuted for righteousness. Okay, when you make a righteous stand, and, and it's not done in arrogance, but in our heart, Jesus said we're blessed. What's another one? Blessed are the meek or the humble. Moses, meekest man on earth, strong, but yet he realized God was the source of every good thing. What else? Merciful. And what is merciful? It's kind. It's compassionate. It's forgiving. You can cheat because I've forgotten too. What? Pure in heart. All right. For they shall. What was the reward of the pure in heart? They shall. How important is that? Life on earth is not too long. I, I saw somebody on Facebook the other day said, I'm so old. I'm 20. I really try 52. What else? What else are we blessed for? Peacemakers, which helps people get along and get together. We got that one. We, we, we can have somebody, you know, do something to you if you like, though. What else? Go ahead, cheat. Now I'm ready to go. What did we miss? We got meek. Yeah, okay, that's good, uh, but that's not... Okay. Go ahead, honey, cheat. Maybe I can't count. Pastor Joe, which ones are we missing? Okay, 8, 9, 10. Blessed are the people who walk with God in all their ways. Okay, well, it sounded like 10. I was studying, it felt like 10. Well, anyway, this is kind of a start, the greatest story ever told. And you'll catch more about what Jesus had to say. And the way he started this whole anthem of life. If you just want to teach your kids how to live, teach them Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I mean, it's the great foundation of everything Jesus taught in life. And he started out by saying the path to happiness. And that's what we read tonight. And it's so different from the ways of the world. Lord, would you help us to really tailor our life, turn our life, what you called us to do, repent from the way we used to be and begin to follow the ways of Christ the King. We are parties of another kingdom. And I just pray for all of us. Well, these are some kind of abstract terms, but yet you promised us happiness if we would find ourselves poor in spirit, which was dependent on you. We would find ourselves humble and meek if we, when we mourn because of what's either happened or what's going on around us hunger and thirsting for righteousness, persecution may come to us, all these things. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you help us when our paths are confronted with the option that we choose that path of life where you'd lead us. I ask you to bless all my friends that ask you to smile on us and do us good and let us make a difference in this world for Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Everybody's it? Amen. Hey, thanks for coming.